I'd had a vision as a child that I, I suddenly was taken outside of time and I saw myself as an old lady, very old lady, nearing death, feeling that I hadn't done what I'd come to this life to do. And that sensation, it, it just left me so bereft. I, you know, I just, I felt it viscerally, what it would feel like to live 85 years and not do what you came to this world to do. And when I came out of that vision, I thought, well, that's not going to be me. I'm, you know, it was almost a warning sign that I, I have to, I don't know what it is, you know, but I'm going to be true to myself. This is the podcast, Creative at the Wheel, and I'm Julie Clare. As a transformational life coach and creativity guide, my life's work is helping people reshape their lives from the inside out. Here, I have deep dive conversations with luminaries who share about their own transformational journeys and how they became soul-sourced and creatively juiced. May their stories uplift and embolden all of us. Let's jump in. Hannah Rappaport is a lifelong independent learner whose experience is when the student is ready, the teacher will come. She's designed clothing, practiced Traeger bodywork, Tai Chi, Qigong, made pottery and sculpture for two children, married and divorced, said mass as a Gnostic priestess, and more. Remembering and performing her soul's purpose in life is her purpose in life. She is a, a spiritual counselor and lives alone in northern New Mexico. I recently met Hannah through a friend and knew immediately I wanted to talk with her for this podcast. She's been through so many different life places and truly transformations of really changing core energies in her life. Um, she's been through the dark, the light, all of it, and is now living with such grace as a spiritual counselor. I wanted to have a meandering conversation with her and see where we might go together. So welcome in, Hannah. Thank you. I'm <laughs> really start, happy to be here. I'm happy you're here as well. Now, I know you're in Taos and I'm in El Rito. It's an hour. We're really an hour apart and it's a very windy day. I thought I would just check in with you. And what's it like to live where you live in Taos, New Mexico these days? Just give us a little check in. Oh, well, these very specific days, it's been very windy and very smoky. And I understand northern New Mexico is on the radar for people all over the country. I had spoke with a friend this morning in Oregon, and he said they, they gave a lot of time to northern New Mexico. So, you know, we're dealing with climate change in a very real way here. And yet, for me, in Taos, it's, it's pretty steady. And I try to say yes to everything. I try to accept everything. And so if it's smoky and super windy, I tend to go out less, but I'm not afraid of it. And I, I would say I feel fairly well supported by my Taos community and the friends that I can see openly in person. And um, I would say for the most part, living in Taos is, is pretty relaxing for me. Beautiful. I, I just picture you in a cycle of somehow after talking with you briefly to begin with, I'd just like to know where are you in your cycle of life? Like if you were a butterfly right now, where, where are you? How would you put yourself? <laughs> I, I'm the butterfly. You're the butterfly. <laughs> having, been, having been the worm, you know, and crawling around and then having been the cocoon, I, I feel that I'm the butterfly now, um, just going from flower to flower, receiving nourishment from everything that I touch. And I, I was just speaking with a friend this morning 
he's an, an older man also, and we were talking about how wonderful it is to be this age, um, to have had my children and they're raised and they're, they're full-grown adults. And I take it to heart what Khalil Gibran said, your children are born through you, they are not of you. And I used to feel that when I was a rebellious teenager with my parents who were trying to make something out of me. Um, and I was resistant to that. And so now when I look at my children who are grown, they're 36 and 41, um, I just say, you know, this, this is who they are. I did the best that I could and I have no control over them. And so I, I'm not interested in being the matriarch of a family with, I don't have grandchildren. So I do have friends who are really enjoying that role, being the matriarch of their children and their grandchildren. And then all the family holidays and the get togethers and things like that. And I grew up with that, but I, I, I didn't step up to that role in this time of life. And I'm, I'm actually happy that I don't have that role to play because I think I've spent my life trying to not play any roles and to not get stuck in an identity. It, it always, that always seemed to feel too constricting. Yeah. I'm going to ask you right there because, you know, talking about your children and who you are now um, and, you know, thinking about the twists and turns of your life uh, let's, let's go there. You were, I mean, we could go all the way back, but as a teenager, it says here in your, um, in your own writing uh, and during your early twenties, you survived and dove through the wild Hollywood of sex and drugs and rock and roll married a man, which you believed was forever and played the role of housewife and mother with two children in private schools as your husband provided as a show business attorney, you studied ceramic art, oil painting with a Norwegian master jewelry making and eventually writing all kinds of things. What was one of these, what was the shift from that time in your life uh, to the next? Cause there seemed to be some kind of big change there. And I know you have a beautiful memoir that you did write this about, um, Love on the Brink of uh, History. Love on the Brink of History. Yes. But what can you tell us about that shift that you made from those roles when you said you're not so interested in having any of these identities at this point? What was that like? What was that first change there from all those identities out of that? Yeah. Well, it was pretty shocking for everyone around me. Um. What happened was, well, it, it's a story that I tell in my memoir, but briefly, um, my, I grew up with the name Ethel Ann Rappaport, and I knew that I had been named after my grandmother, and she was always known as Ethel. And I never, ever felt comfortable in that name. It just, it was even hard for me to introduce myself to say that name because there was just something not right about it. And my father, who he was a physicist, but I think he was also a closet mystic. And one day he just said to me, I was 36 years old. And he just said, I don't think you know this, but your grandmother's real name was Hannah. And literally my jaw dropped and I was in shock and I looked at him and I said, that's my name. Why didn't you name me that? And he gave some kind of, it was a tradition to be named after um, an ancestor who had died in the Jewish religion, which is what I grew up in. And, and he said, well, she was always known as Ethel and your grandfather wanted us to name you Ethel. And so we did. And they shortened my middle name they shortened the middle name, the, the Hannah part, to Anne. And I was born in Israel, 
And the family moved to the States, to Los Angeles, when I was just a baby. I never spoke Hebrew. I couldn't read my birth certificate. It was all in Hebrew. And so I learned this at age 36, wow. <laughs> what my real name was. And by that time, I had started to be involved with the Gnostic Church. And I was going to Mass there and going to lectures. And so when I was turning 40, just before my 40th birthday, I asked the bishop, who I'd become friends with, if there was a name-changing ceremony, because I decided I was going to take my real name. And he, he looked at me with a twinkle in his eye, and he said, well, you haven't been baptized yet. And, you know, there was a big portion of me going to the Gnostic church that was saying, what's a nice Jewish girl doing in a place like this? Because it was very Catholic. The ceremony um, was like a Catholic mass. And, but by that time I had trusted the bishop and his name was Stefan Holler, Heller. He was um, Hungarian, is, he's still alive. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll get baptized. Why not? Because I want to have my real name and I want to make a little ceremony out of it. Mm. And, and so we did. And this Gnostic church was um, in this, a storefront on Hollywood Boulevard. It was just a shabby little storefront. But the bishop was very... Um, archetypal, I would say, and uh, was a staunch keeper of the ancient ceremonies. And so we wore vestments, you know, the clergy wore vestments, and it was very formal. And so I had this baptism, and I've described it as a dinky little ceremony because it's in this funky storefront with people all dressed up in Catholic garments. And he pours a little water on my head and says a little ceremony. And in the following weeks and months, I started having profound mystical experiences that were related to the, to the Gnostic mythology and some of the ancient texts of the Gnostics and the Nag Hammadi library and a lot of the myths. I was having dreams and daytime visions, and I was just thrown into this mystical archetypal world. And it was literally like being thrown into a river and trying to keep my head above water. And, you know, it, it confused and confounded and broke my husband's heart. And in the end, it, it just, that whole world was so much more real than the world that I had created around me that was made up of roles, you know, the mother role, the housewife role, the, just the, the different ways that I was being. And those just became less and less real to me and this archetypal world became more and more real to me. And so um, this new name, <laughs> my authentic mm. name, really crashed and burned my old life. And what was interesting was I made all new friends through the Gnostic Church, and they only knew me as Hannah. So it wasn't hard to get people to start calling me Hannah. And I just... I embodied my own name. You know, when you say this, my work is often helping people transform to change and make a core change in their life and, and energy shift and, and different possibilities and all this. When I hear you speak of this name change and how this launched its own transformation, it's like the universe having its way with you in a way. It It is a, I haven't ever talked with someone on this podcast where this kind of change was instigated by a name change and a ceremony like baptism. I mean, it's quite something, isn't it? Um, 
did you, when did you, did it, does it make sense now um, that that happened then? Like there was a, a readiness or does it really feel like a stroke of the hand of the universe kind of in a wild way? Um, oh, it makes very much sense now because then everything that I've studied and followed since then has been like a sutra. You know, I, I think of like when the Buddhists talk about sutra, that's a, a Sanskrit name from which the word suture comes. And so it's a thread. So I realize that everything that has happened to me since then has been a, another bead on that thread in the necklace of my life. And when you were going through that and that suturing, you know, now, now you can see that, you know, have this perspective when you were in it, what, what did you lean on for comfort and or guidance? What was there to help you through that? I, I hear there is a lot of, um, how do you want to say it? Uh, things coming apart, right? There's, um, some of those roles, disint I don't know, was it a disintegration or I was just, what was that like? And what, what was there for you for comfort and or guidance and or a sense of knowing? Yeah, there was an inner voice that was so powerful. In the Gnostic tradition, they call that the Christ within. Um, in recent years, I've been studying um, the guides as channeled by Paul Selig, and they call themselves Melchizedek. And what I've learned over the years, and it took me a while to learn it, that first of all, when I was ordained in the priesthood in the Gnostic Church, because after that baptism, I was just following this inner voice that was moving me forward. And initially, that voice said quite literally, <clears throat> you need to be initiated. And in the 20th century, this is the best we can do. So stay with this man, meaning the bishop, stay with this format, follow it through, and we'll meet you at the other end, as it were. <laughs> but um, but so then, you heard that that was really, I was very clear. Yeah, it was very clear. And so I did, I just followed, followed that guidance. And it took me through then all of the stages of initiation, which were um, um, what's a confirmation. And then, and then the next thing was joining the clergy. And it was like, wow, okay, I don't even like the clothes, but okay, you know, I'll put on these vestments. And, and it just went through these different phases that, are very similar to a Catholic church. So there's reader and exorcist and deacon and, you know, on through. And, and then eventually I was ordained a priest. And, and that was over the course of about 10 years. And when the initiation to priesthood came, the bishop says, and it's printed in all caps, you are now a priest in the order of Melchizedek forever. And I wasn't really familiar with the name Melchizedek. It wasn't that common in um, the, the liturgy. And so I just accepted it. And it was only a couple of years later that I looked up who Melchizedek is and learned that Melchizedek was the priest or the priesthood that had initiated Abraham. And so in a way that the whole Gnostic initiation, which confounded my family, because, you know, they just all said, why can't you find spiritual fulfillment in your own religion? And it was so far beyond that. But when I realized that Melchizedek was the, the, the conscious energy 
that had initiated Abraham, I realized I was going back to the very beginning of my own religion. And I kind of lost track of if I Wow. Well, no, it's well, I'm curious just to ask what what had been your involvement in the Jewish religion at that point? Um, pretty secular. Mm-hmm. You know, my I was born in Israel. My grandfather was one of the founders of Israel. He'd been friends with Golda Meir, and they were in the first, it was called Aliyah after World War I, that went and went to, to Palestine to found this, you know, place for Jews. And then after World War II, when Israel was made into a state, he was just one of the one of the founders of that state. And he was from Russia and he was a farmer and he was also a really intelligent man. And so, you know, that's kind of my genetic heritage, but he was also not very religious. He, he believed in the Jewish people, but he didn't so much believe in the religion. And I was kind of like that. So, and fortunately, my dad, as I said, was a physicist, so he wasn't super religious either. My mother had grown up in a very orthodox and what I call superstitious kind of um, background. So I think when she married my father, she was happy not to have to keep kosher and follow all those rules. And so I grew up in that. My parents loved each other deeply, dearly. They were married for 74 years. And I feel that I got the essence of true love in my family, true unconditional love without a lot of trappings. And as I was able to say to them before they die, they they really taught me what God is because because I always felt loved by my parents. And that's beautiful. And, and so that's quite a background. And there you are. Um, you had this baptism, you had this experience, and, and, and then you ultimately became a Gnostic priest, priestess. And um, what, what was it like your, your mother role? What was, what was, how was your energy running differently at that point? And uh, leaving the marriage and how that happened. How, how did that energetic, who did you become energetically at that time? Well, it's interesting, you know, what you do with teaching art and drawing and it was creativity was a big part of that transition. And so um, one of the priests in the Gnostic church was also a Norwegian um, painter, very fine painter, real master painter. And he had a school in Santa Monica. And um, so I studied with him for a little while. And I was doing, there were a lot of things happening in Los Angeles at that time. The women's movement was, you know, the feminine archetype was really emerging. And so I was playing with clay and doing sculpture and pottery and painting and just doing a lot dancing, doing a lot of creative things that were giving me an outlet for this transformation. And how do you think that, how did that, what did that give you? Do you think in that point of where you were and during this change to have all that creativity going on, but do you have a sense of what that gave you? Yeah, it really helped me express what was going on inside of me and find something true. Um, you know, I never became a master of any of those those artistic expressions, but they helped me um, just move the energy through because just there was a lot of energy in the transformation and there was also a lot of resistance. Um like I say, from my family, from my husband, my children. And so the 
the creativity really help. So and, the creativity is moving all this energy through. Uh, and I'm just curious, did it give you confidence in some way by being in more movement, not being, you know, being able to go with what was happening and not get stuck? I'm just, I think curious, the yeah, the confidence came from that inner voice. Um, it was so much more real. I mean, people have talked about this, having near-death experiences that are just more real than this world. It was so much more real that that gave me the confidence. And there was another voice that at one point I felt, this is my only friend, because I knew that I was not... Um, going to be or getting entrenched in the whole Gnostic culture. I knew that it was a process that I was being initiated by. But again, I was not going to take that on as an identity. And so there was the one voice that I found was the voice of Rumi, the 13th century um, Sufi poet, and I had I'd met this. Um, there was a Sufi man at a at a Sufi bookstore in Westwood, in Los Angeles, and he showed me the way that they use Rumi as divination. And there were times where I was really confused and needed to consult someone, but there was no therapist, there was nobody that I could consult that didn't either not understand what was going on with me or have an agenda for what was going on with me. And so I would use Rumi as like this divination, and I would have a, a concern or a feel lost or, you know, not understand what was going on. And I would open the book at random, and there was Rumi. I get the chills just talking about it now. There was Rumi just guiding me on, saying, go, go forward, go forward, keep, you know, keep going, giving me guidance. And it was profound. Wow. Did you have one book of Rumi that you were particularly working with? Um. Not one book. There was a set of books that was translated by Coleman Barks. Mm -hmm. And I just, I loved those books. They were simple and easy to comprehend. And interestingly, I heard a story years later that there's this Sufi group um, from Kona in Turkey. They and they're musicians anyway. They were traveling, and a friend of mine had hooked up with them because he's also a musician. And they had said, and they were from that direct lineage of Rumi. And they had said, Coleman Barks's translations they felt were the purest. And so, there were there's been other translations, and I find them kind of intellectual. And that's that's one thing that Rumi kind of teases is the intellectual he compares the intellectual to um the mystic and i was definitely on the side of the mystic because i intellectually none of this made sense i got it and somehow you knew or you were done with these identities um yeah. that was was I'm, I'm hearing that that was part of this initiation this experience that you had after the baptism that you knew that no identity could hold you anymore. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it is. And, you know, even, even the Gnostic priest could, could. So I never, you know, people, when they became a deacon, they would buy a collar, a priest collar, you know, those white strips yeah. people wear. And, um, and I saw people, I saw their egos getting attached, you know, and I just never wanted, I'd never bought a collar. And the bishop would say, well, you know, you need to get a collar. And I'd say, yeah, okay. And I would just avoid him and avoid him. And I just never got a collar. 
because I just, <clears throat> I didn't want to lock myself in or choke myself in with even that identity. Well, you write, um, write something, um, actually, it's not right. You quote on your website, I believe it's, there's a quote from the gospel of Thomas. And I just wanted to, I just wanted to speak that into the space when you speak that, um, that which you bring forth will save you. That which you do not bring forth will kill you. Mm. Gospel of Thomas. Mm -hmm. Was that already alive in you or what, what is that quote? When did that come to really ring true for you? Or how is that a part of all of this, this unfolding that you speak yeah. of here? Well, for me, the gospel of Thomas was kind of my workbook, you know, during those years. There's a lot of other scholarship about Gnosticism, and I was not that interested in it. But the Gospel of Thomas spoke to me so directly from previous times. It's like it took me out of time because at the very beginning of the book, it says, these are the words that the living Jesus spoke and Judas Didymus Thomas wrote down. And every time I hear those words, I just get chills because it was also a book that wasn't translated until the 1950s um, by a Dutch scholar of Gnosticism. And um, so it didn't go through the Roman Empire. It didn't go through all of the the periods where people had an agenda about who Jesus was. So to me, it felt like the words were the most authentic. And, you know, I was in that, just to put it really simply, and it mm -hmm. really is simplifying. There was a part of me that could have denied all of this, said this isn't real, and stayed married and stayed a Valley housewife and raised my children and stayed, you know, in that whole life. And if I had done, it would have killed me because I would not have realized who I really am. And I'd had a vision as a child <clears throat> that I, I suddenly was taken outside of time and I saw myself as an old lady, very old lady, nearing death, feeling that I hadn't done what I'd come to this life to do. And that sensation, it just left me so bereft. You know, I just, I felt it viscerally what it would feel like to live 85 years and not do what you came to this world to do. And when I came out of that vision, I thought, well, that's not going to be me. I'm, you know, it was almost a warning sign that I, I have to, I don't know what it is, you know, but I'm going to be true to myself, whatever it is. And so that 40 pivot, turning 40, was when my higher self and my guides came and said, all right, you said you wanted to make sure that you, <clears throat> you, you lived your life truthfully. Um, here we go. And how, where, how old were you when you had that vision of the 85-year-old not, you know, not living? I was very young. I don't remember. It's like exactly. less than 10 kind of thing? Or? Yeah. I, I so you say were young. Yeah, well, I had I had visions even younger than that. Um, I didn't know that they were unusual. You know, I just, they were just my inner world. So my very first vision, I was about four or five. And I was walking down the street and I, I just asked, knowing that I was asking someone how am I supposed to live this life? And the answer came immediately inside of me. Try to stay as close to the Christ as you can. And 
And it was like, okay. And I knew what that meant, even though I was raised Jewish and we never, you know, you just don't say the name of Jesus Christ in a Jewish household. And, but I knew what that meant. So I think my life has has been a series of becoming more and more aware that I'm not just this limited here and now lifetime in this limited body, that I'm really much more than that. And I think my whole life has has been, I mean, I got to play, you know, up until until 40. Um, (laughs) And then it was like, okay, now you have to really do what you came here to do. Wow. And I, you know, when I think of transformation being a real core shift in life that stays, you know, it's not a, a start and stop, but it's uh, and something else begins. I, I hear that. Uh, I love that. I played until I was 40. <laughs> I started being what I was here to do. What What's your relationship with that word, you know, or, or being true to yourself now and, and purpose? Are, are you good with that word or does it feel too... Um, I don't know. Is it not helpful? You like the word purpose. Does that speak to this truth that you, you out there? I like the word purpose, but I think it's highly misunderstood because I feel that our purpose is in the moment. So like this morning, my purpose was to get up early and go out and take care of some medical things. Um, Right now, my purpose is speaking with you. I think it's, you know, later my purpose is going to be going to the market. Um, and within that, so that's the, you know, the small daily things. The higher purposes for me, like that very first vision, to be as close to that Christed mind as I can because that's a radiant light. And the more I can be in that state of being, the more I can shine for those around me. So that's another thing that the Gospel of Thomas says, within a man of light, there is light. And when he shines, he lights up the whole world. So I would say the big purpose is to do that. Um, but to do doing that in my daily life, you know, whether it's my job, you know, even if I'm, I work in a car wash, you know, that's still my purpose is to be that for whoever I encounter. And so like today I encountered, you know, a lab technician who is drawing blood my purpose is to be the light for that man so that, you know, he feels like he's had a good encounter with another human being and can go into his day with that. And as your role as a spiritual counselor, when you meet with people and you're speaking or listening or talking with them, what's your sense of how people are looking for purpose or how they get um, well, that's one question. And another would be how, how the purpose is, can almost be a tyranny of the sense they have to do something. Yeah. Yeah. I think people, um, are at cross purposes, pardon the pun, when (laughs) when they think that their purpose has to be what their career is. Um, I'm sure we've all encountered meeting a cheerful uh, checkout person at, at the market and how that uplifts your spirits in that day. Someone who smiles at you and uplifts you. I think, I think really that's all of our purpose is to uplift ourselves so that we can uplift one another whatever it is that the world has us doing, you know, whatever our career is, whatever our doing this is in the world, we are, we're, 
we're lights manifesting through that doing to uplift one another. Well, I just relax when I listen to you speak of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's beautiful to hear the, um, and right now where you are, what, how, what's your, what's your relationship to guidance now, visions and, or roomy and, or what, what shows up for you now? Well, I'm doing the work of the guides that mm-hmm. speak through Paul Selig. Um, there's 10 books that they've channeled through him. And it's to me, it's the purest teaching that there is. And it, it feels of the lineage that I am. I think there are different spiritual lineages, and I respect them all. And this is the one that I feel I belong to. And so I continue with the teachings of these guides. And they speak to me, whether I'm listening to a channel session or reading the books or not, or in conjunction. So I don't consult Rumi as much, but I do the same kind of divination with these books. So if I'm having a question, in my own life, I'll, I'll grab one of these books just by intuition and take that one, open it up at random, and, and that will speak to what it, what it is that I'm going through. But I've also started a practice where I have an altar um, on my mantle, and I in, in, every morning I light a candle and I welcome the guides in to guide me this day so that I can be of the highest and best service to whomever I encounter and whatever I encounter in this day. So, you know, I'm always asking for help because one of the things I'm aware of is that my small self doesn't know, doesn't know nothing about anything, you know, she, she can divert things. So that's, that's my purpose now is to stay as, as adhered to my higher Christ mind as I can. And that was my very first mandate at four years old. So I realized my whole life is kind of one continuity in that strand of beads on that sutra that has taken place through my life as, um, you know, I feel that I'm wearing that necklace now. Wow. Isn't that something right? Following this thread all the way through. Um, and yet all these different situations, um, when you're counseling or, you know, spending time with people and, helping them or being with them, how much would you say you are pointing to their own guidance and or how they can get connected to something other than their smaller self? How much of that is part of what you do? It's probably 95%. Wow. That's because I'm hearing that and I'm just soaking that in when I'm with you. Yeah. What's your experience of that? How are how do people go with that? If I, if I, as, as these guides guide, if I look at a person and say, I know who you really are in truth, you know, I know what you really are, I know how you serve. If I can see that person in their higher aspect, it, it, it's just witnessing. I mean, you can feel that for yourself when someone sees who you really are. Yeah. You know, like you said, it's very relaxing. You're not having to defend yourself or justify yourself or make excuses for yourself because you see, they see you. And so that's my first um, way of being. And, and I have to say living like this as I do, which I don't have a lot of distractions. I don't watch the news and I don't 
I I want to know kind of what's going on in the world, but I'm not attached to outcomes. Um, I try to see everything as divine. And so living like that, you become more and more intuitive. And so because I've had all of this experience with different modalities of psychology and um, just physical knowledge, um, things come up to say. (laughs) Someone is going through something and I'll listen and listen and listen and then something will want to be said. And more often nowadays, what wants to be said is what that person needs to hear. I got it. Do you, in this place, I hear very much in presence, you know, being in the moment, Mm -hmm. do you have dreams or things that want to be manifest? I ask this because I think of this all the time with myself. (laughs) Like on the one hand, I don't need anything to happen on the outside. On the other hand, I personally have things like, oh, it'd be really neat to experience that. I've never experienced that, you know? These things come up. I'm wondering if you have that stuff come up. Funny you should ask that. <laughs> because I had a dream the other night where I was writing. Uh, when I wrote my memoir, there was a one particular event. It was a pilgrimage that I took with the Gnostic group to Montségur in France, which was um, the last Cathar holdout. And the Cathars were late. Latter-day Gnostics. Anyway, seven of us took this trip to France, and I didn't put it in the book. And it was actually the pivotal experience that I'd had with the Gnostics. And I didn't feel that I was, actually, I didn't feel I was up to writing it. I didn't feel I could do it justice. And so I just left it out. And the literally a couple nights ago, I had a dream that I was writing that chapter and maybe not republishing the book, but maybe just putting it out as a separate um, entity, the lost chapter. Now, we only have probably have a few minutes left here, but uh, could you tell us anything about that experience? About the? Yeah, the pivotal one in France. The unwritten one, yeah. Yeah, the unwritten one that may that may get yes. if I if I'm willing to do it. Um, that's the thing. We always have choice. We can do these or not. But uh, well, you know, it was kind of there were seven of us. The I don't know, I don't know where to start with that briefly. But anyway, we all ended up in France, and we ended up in two houses, a friend of ours had, one of the priests among us had um, access to two houses in the south of France, in Belvesse. And so we divided up, there was seven of us, we divided up into the two houses and we had some cars and we just toured around the south of France and and got closer and closer to Montségur. And the whole time we were studying the history of the Cathars and Um, reading the guidebooks and things. And then we got to the mountain and um, hiked up the mountain and spent a half a day up at the top of the mountain just to feel it, to commune with it. And, you know, I had some experiences up there of having been there and having Mm. been there with the, the man Jan, the, uh, he was the painter, the Norwegian painter and the Gnostic priest that he and I had been there together before. I had some experiences like where I could hear horses when they took the Gnostics from the top of the mount who had held out there for about two years and they were crucified, they were burned. And so I had some almost like vague memories of that. And but then the I think that the most poignant experience I had was that they weren't there. There were no ghosts. I didn't feel any ghosts there. 
Hmm. Um, that it was like, well, if their goal was liberation from, you know, this material existence, they accomplished that because they, you know, they weren't still hovering around in pain. And but anyway, the 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 entire experience was really a highlight and a joy and such a pleasure being with all those people, with my friends and traveling around the south of France, which is so beautiful. Oh, I hope indeed you do write it for for my sake. I would love to read it. The um and it sounds like you don't feel pressure, but you you have had a dream a couple nights ago. So you're I'm hearing interest. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, sometimes your higher self asks you to do something and you think, oh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> That's a lot of work. <laughs> um, and again, that which you bring forth will save you. So uh, just the fact that you're asking that question is making me think, OK, I guess I'm going to do this. Hannah, what a delight to talk about you. What a what a beautiful story. We could talk about all kinds of kinds of different things. I just so appreciate you jumping in with me today. I think we're going to call it a wrap there, but um, let's. Uh, I think there's going to be a part two at some point. Well, I just I really enjoy meeting you and communing with you. We seem to have so much in common, and I really appreciate you um, just having this avenue to be able to have this kind of conversation thank you and actually it just feels so light filled right now i'm so glad i do have this podcast uh i look forward to our cup of tea and chows and till next time okay thank you well that's today's podcast of creative at the wheel before we go i want to invite you to check out my creativity and spirit online retreats Experience for yourself the breakthroughs and support available when you engage your creative self in a safe and playful community. Begin here if you are ready to ignite your own transformational journey in a joyful way. You can also learn more about my one-on-one coaching offerings on my website, paintbiglivebig.com.